Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be useful for every good work. It's one of our favorite scriptures around City Reach. So if you've been here for any length of time, you know this is one of the reasons why we teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse through books of the Bible. All scripture is God-breathed. Now the reason I start with that is because we've come into a pretty difficult part of the book of Daniel. If you're new with us, we are studying through the book of Daniel and we've come to Daniel chapter 8. So if you want to just get your Bibles open, open them up to Daniel chapter 8, lay them on your laps in front of you. And this is a difficult part of the Bible. Like, the first six chapters are the hero narratives, and they're easy to preach and they're easy to understand. But as you come into chapters 7 to chapters 12, you come into the prophetic part of the book of Daniel, and prophecy isn't easy to understand, and it requires a bit of sweat. It requires a bit of mental effort on the part of the preacher, but also on the part of the listener as well. But we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God, that all of it is useful for teaching and training us to be the people who God wants us to be. And so we tackle the difficult parts of the Bible. You know, it's interesting if you were to just look on Google and you were just to do a Google search of people's studies of the book of Daniel you'll find that many people just study chapters 1 to 6 and then they sort of finish when they come to chapter 7 because it is a little bit more difficult. But we're not going to do that. We are going to put in the sweat. I'll put in the sweat if you do, okay? Well, I'll still put it in anyway. But anyways, we'll put in the sweat together. And I want to approach this chapter this morning by asking three questions. And these three questions are three questions that you should ask when you come to any passage of the Bible. The first question is, what does the passage say? The second question is, what does the passage mean? And the third question is, how does the passage apply? When you come to study a part of the Bible, you've got to start with that first question. What does the passage say? This appeals to the level of our understanding. You're, never, you're not going to get anything out of the Bible unless you understand what is in the Bible. What are the details of the text? The second question, what does the passage mean? This appeals to the level of significance. Okay, so I understand what is actually in this passage, what it's saying, but what does that actually mean? What timeless truth is this passage seeking to teach us? And the third question, how does this passage apply? Well, this speaks to the level of relevance. As someone has rightly said, the Bible wasn't just given for our information and it wasn't just given for our inspiration but it was given for our transformation. And so we want to, as we go out this morning, we want to make sure that we are not just hearers of the word so, and so deceive ourselves, but we want to be doers of the word. We want to apply the word to our lives. But first, let's start in our study of Daniel chapter 8 this morning by looking at that first question, what is the passage saying? Well, as I said, as we come into Daniel chapter 8, we remember that we are now in a prophetic section of the book. The Bible is filled with different types of literature. Uh, the first six chapters, as I said, were historical narratives. 
But then you come into this prophetic part of the book. And in prophecy, uh, Hebrew prophecy, uh, the Hebrew prophets often did two things. They, they uh, sought to correct God's people and, and call God's people back to faithfulness to the Lord. But they also, there are also sections of predictive prophecy, predicting things and events that are going to come true in the future. And Daniel chapter 8 is, uh, is an example of predictive prophecy. Events are predicted. Now, the breakdown of the chapter is really quite simple. Verses 1 to verse 14, we have Daniel is given a vision. And then verses 15 to the end of the chapter, we see the interpretation of that vision, much like chapter 7. In verse 1 of Daniel chapter 8, we have a timing marker. It says that it was in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. Now, Daniel lived under the reign of three different kings. You had Nebuchadnezzar, his son Belshazzar, and then you had Darius the Mede. And their reigns are recorded for us in the first six chapters of the book. King Nebuchadnezzar, he, it was chapters 1 to chapter 4. Then you had Belshazzar, chapter 5. And then you had, it changed to the Medes and the Persians in chapter 6. So this is in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. Now, you'll remember if you were here last week that Les showed us in chapter 7 and verse 1 that that vision that was given in chapter 7 was given in the first year of the reign of Belshazzar. So in the first year of the reign of Belshazzar, Daniel had a vision. And then a couple years later, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, he had another vision. Now, in verse 2, we're told where the vision took place. He says, and I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel. Now, if you remember, if you were here with us when we were studying through the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was also in Susa. Susa is about 300 miles north of Babylon. And remember, Nehemiah was in Susa when he got that report that the city of Jerusalem had been burned and its gates were down and the people were suffering and he was brokenhearted. Well, Nehemiah is in Susa and he's by the Ulai Canal. I just Googled that, and the Ulai Canal is like 50 miles north of Susa. So here's um, Daniel. He's in this winter palace this, of Susa, and he goes out for a walk by the canal. And then while he's walking, verse 3, he sees this. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and he became great. So are you with me already or have you already fallen asleep? Remember I said this is going to take a bit of, bit of sweat for all of us here. So you got the ram. All right. He goes by a walk by the canal. He sees this ram with two horns. Looks up, sees this ram with two horns and it's moving westward, northward, southward. And it's very great. Now, up to this point, he might, might not have thought that anything different was happening. But then something happens in verse 5 that, you know, shows him that this is something supernatural that's happening. Look down in verse 5. He says, as I was considering, as I was thinking about what I was seeing, behold, a male goat came up from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. So it's flying. <laughs> So this now, we, we get a picture now that this is not just a natural 
thing that's happening. He's not just seeing this natural picture, but this is something supernatural. This is a vision that Daniel is receiving, this flying goat. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Conspicuous means that it was obvious. It could be clearly seen. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and he struck the ram, and he broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, but he was cast down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could, be res- who could rescue the ram from his power. Are you still with me? All right. I googled Daniel chapter 8 just to give you a bit of a picture, and this is what came up. This might be what, what Daniel saw. He sees this, this ram with two horns and this goat with this big horn coming against the ram, and it, it hits the ram and breaks off its horns, and then it tramples it underfoot. Now, this is, this is important because, you know, when we read prophecy, what we're supposed to be doing when we read prophecy is our imagination is supposed to be engaged. It's supposed to be a vivid imagery of 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 something, and so your, your imagination is supposed to be engaged as you read these prophetic sessions. Well, verse 8, then we read this. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of the heaven. So that's this, this horn was broken off, and then out of that became four horns, all right? Verse 9, and out of one of those four horns came a little horn, which grew up exceedingly great towards the south. So who's in the south? Egypt are in the south, so it becomes exceedingly great towards the south, towards Egypt, towards the east, towards Babylon, and towards the glorious land. Who do you think the glorious land is, class? Israel. Israel. It, became, it grew great, verse 10, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host... And some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled underfoot. Now, who was here last year when we were studying Genesis? Who was here last year? Genesis chapter 15. Do you remember what God said to Abraham? He said, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the what? As the stars of the heavens. So this horn, he comes against the host of heaven, the people of Israel, and he throws them down and he tramples on them. So the people of Israel are going to be persecuted by this Little horn. Verse 11, it became great, even as great as the prince of the host. So it becomes like a ruler over, over the people of Israel. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of the sanctuary was overthrown. So the temple is overthrown, and the burnt offering ceases in Jerusalem. Verse 12, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground. That's probably a reference to the law being thrown to the ground. And it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke. The holy one's probably an angel. And what does he say? For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, this transgression that brings to an end the sacrifice in the temple, and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. All right, who's still with me? Are you with me? Okay. I know this is causing us some mental energy, but all scripture is God-breathed 
And this is scripture, right? Is it not? And so we have, so let me just summarize the vision so far so that you're all with me again. We've got the ram. It comes up with the two horns. We've got the goat. He breaks off the two horns, but when he becomes exceedingly great, his horn breaks off. Out of his horn comes four horns. Out of that horn comes a little horn. That little horn persecutes God's people, Israel, and causes some sort of transgression that puts an end to the burnt offering and the sacrifice. But it's only going to be for 2,300 days. All right. You think you're confused? Daniel was also confused. Verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. All right? That's interesting, isn't it, that Daniel had sort of understood other dreams and visions, but this one, he needed help. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Uh, In the Bible, there is the angel Gabriel, and he appears on numerous occasions. He's one, an archangel of God who ministers in the very presence of God. And imagine the enormity of that, of having the archangel Gabriel appear to you. Well, it was enormous even for Daniel, because in verse 17, he says, When he came near, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Now, just underline that in your Bible. It's for the time of the end. And I want you to just hold that in your mind for a moment. This vision is somehow related to the time of the end. Verse 18, And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. And he said, Behold, I will make known to you what will be at the latter end of the indignation For it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So this ram is Media and Persia, the kingdom of Media and Persia, and the two horns are the two kings of Media and Persia. Now remember when this is written. This is written in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar that that Daniel is having this revealed to him. And do you know what? This came true exactly in history. After Belshazzar, his kingdom was overtaken by the Medes and the Persians, and there were two great kings of the Medes and the Persians, exactly as God's word had said. This is amazing. It's phenomenal. Well, who is the goat? Look down in verse 21. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Do you realize that uh, under Alexander the Great... Greece rose as a world power, and it conquered exactly as is described in here. In verse 5, it says that the male goat came from the west. Greece was in the west, and under Alexander the Great, it came across and conquered the then-known world. But his downfall is spelt out exactly as the Bible says. When he was exceedingly great, it says the horn was broken. And at the height of Alexander's power, at age 33 years of age, He died suddenly, exactly as the Bible says. Well, who then are these four horns that come out of the one broken off horn? Well, look down in verse 22. As for the horn that was broken, in place of these four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, 
but not with his power. This, you've got to be sitting on the edge of your seat right now because this is phenomenal. This is phenomenal. What happened after Alexander the Great suddenly died is that his kingdom was then split up among his four generals. We know this from history. Ptolemy, Cassandra, Lysissimus, and Seleucus, they took over and became, the kingdoms came under those four generals of Alexander the Great. But they were never, the kingdom was never the great, never as great as what it was under Alexander the Great, as it says there in verse 22. Phenomenal. Then who is this little horn who's going to come out of one of those four horns and persecute God's people and desecrate the temple and put an end to burnt offering? Well, look down in verse 23. We read this. And at the latter end of their kingdom, so at the latter end of the Greek empire, of the reign of these four kingdoms, of these four generals, at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face... One who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, by not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in all he does, and he shall destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Do you realize this was exactly fulfilled in history as well? Out of the Seleucid Empire, one of those four horns, came Epiphanes, Atithicus Epiphanes, and... Let me just get the dates right. In 175 BC, he murdered his brothers and became the, became the ruler of the kingdom. And he invaded Egypt, the kingdom to the south and to the kingdom to the north. And he hated the Jewish people. He had a passion against the Jewish people. So when he came up from Egypt, he ransacked Jerusalem in 167 BC, he subjugated the people. He sold many of them into slavery. He plundered the temple and desecrated the temple. He set up an idol in the temple. He sacrificed a pig on the altar, the transgression that puts an end to burnt offerings. And he outlawed the Jewish religion and threatened them under death if they were to keep on practicing their religion. And he took copies of the Torah, and he tore them up and he burnt them. Exactly as it says, truth was put under foot. So what is this passage saying? <laughs> what is this passage saying? What this passage is saying is that God was giving the Israelites the next 300 years of human history and he was showing how, firstly, the Medes and the Persians would come, and then the Greeks would come, and then these four kingdoms would come, and then right at the end, there would be a really evil king who would come, who would persecute them and desecrate the temple and put an end to burnt offerings. In other words, what he was saying is that evil will have its day. Evil will have its day. You see, for, for Daniel and the exiles, they had been in exile for 70 years. And they were expecting that after the 70 years were up, they were going to come back and it was all going to be great and it was going to be blessed. But actually God was revealing to them that the worst was yet to come. Evil would have its day. Is it any wonder that at the end, look at the end of this chapter, Daniel, it says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. 
He was appalled by this, that God, we have been in exile and even when we return, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get worse and worse and worse and evil is going to increase and it's going to have its day and it's going to climax with Antithicus Epiphanes and the desecration of the temple and the end of the sacrifice. But even though this passage is saying that evil will have its day, it's also teaching, but God will have the final say. God will have the final say. Because remember, in verse 13, one of the angels said, how long is this going to happen, that the temple is desecrated and burnt offering is put an end to? And he said, it's going to last for 2,300 evenings and morning. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. If you add up the evening and morning sacrifices, and you say there was an evening and morning sacrifice, this comes to about three and a bit years. And do you know what happened in history? This is phenomenal. Is that in 163 BC, under the Maccabean revolt, the people of God, the Jews, revolted against the Greeks, and they took back Jerusalem, and the temple and worship in the temple was restored under Judas Maccabeus. And do you know that uh, today the Jewish people celebrate this by celebrating Hanukkah? You might have heard of Hanukkah. This is a celebration of this restoration that happened right here in human history. So this is teaching. What is this passage teaching? It's teaching that evil will have its day, but God will have the final say. God will have the final say. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, on one level, this is phenomenal. This is showing the supernatural quality of the Bible. This book is unlike any other book that you will see out there. This predicts events in human history that come to fruition. This, is, this book was written by a God who knows the future, who knows everything that's going to come to pass. And therefore, since he knows the future, he can predict the future because he knows it. This is not like any other book you read. This book is divine. This book is powerful. Howard Hendricks used to say, this book is alive. You cut it, it bleeds. This book is a powerful, powerful book. And this, is, this should be blowing your minds. This is like Captain Cook discovered Australia in 1770, right? 1770, that's right. Am I right? 1778? Yeah, you know, give or take a few years. This would be like Captain Cook predicting that Scott Morrison was going to become Prime Minister this year. <laughs> Daniel lived in the 6th century. He is predicting things that are happening in the 2nd century. And they are so well predicted that no one doubts that all of these things are references to these, these historical characters. See, this is phenomenal, my friends. This is phenomenal stuff. We should, when we read the Bible, read it with fear and trembling because this book is powerful. It's authoritative. It's supernatural. But secondly, what this is also teaching us is the same thing. Evil will have its day, but God will have the final say. You see, when you read prophecy in the Bible, prophecy often has double reference Double reference. Now, what I mean by that is oftentimes there will be near and far fulfillments. 
The little horn in the book of Daniel is mentioned a number of times. It was mentioned last week in Daniel chapter 7, and we'll see it later on in the book of Daniel as well. But even though I believe that Antithicus Epiphanes was a direct fulfillment of this prophecy, the language is such that it points to a larger fulfillment that will happen in human history. Notice that it says that uh, in verse, verse 12 again, or verse 17 again, that Gabriel said, O son of man, the vision is for the time of the end. The time of the end. And notice in verse 25, by his own cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. Who do you think that's a reference to? I reckon that's a reference to Jesus. So the language in this, yes, it was referring to Antithicus Epiphanes in history, but it's also referring to, as Paul said in 2 Thessalonians, there is coming a man of lawlessness who will rise up against God and he will sit down in the future temple. I believe that in the tribulation period, there will be a reconstructed temple in Jerusalem and it will be desecrated again by the Antichrist. You see, what we've got to realize, people, is that we are living in evil days. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, he said, Do not be unwise, but be wise, knowing the time that the days are evil. We live in evil days. Don't believe progressive liberals who say that history is getting better and one day it's going to become this practical utopia on earth. That's not how history is going. Jesus actually said, history is going to get worse and worse and worse. He actually says this. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith on the earth? So wake up, O sleeper, and let Christ reign on you. We are living in evil times. We are told in, in Romans chapter 13 that knowing the time." Knowing the time, we are to wake from our slumber. For our time, of, for the day of the Lord, is much nearer than when we first believed. We are living in evil days, and as it goes along, as it comes along, it will get increasingly evil. We will be raptured as his church, I believe, and then we will go th the world will go through seven years of great tribulation before, in the end, evil will have its day. But guess what happens? God has the final say. Jesus comes back in Revelation 19 and with the breath of his mouth, he defeats the beast. He defeats the Antichrist. Evil will have its day, but God will have its final say. Jesus won a definitive blow against sin and evil on the cross when he died, but he is coming back again. We do live in evil times and he is coming back again. And he will finally defeat evil. He will defeat sin. He will defeat the devil. So how does this apply to you and me? Well, let me tell you how it first applies. Please do not believe prosperity teachers. It's rubbish. It's rubbish. It's rubbish to say that just because you've got faith, great faith, that that's going to insulate you against the suffering and pain and evil of this world. Christians do suffer. Christians do get eaten by lions. 
the end of the book of Hebrews, the, the prosperity preachers love the book of Hebrews. They love that definition. Faith is the, oh, it's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And they'll tell you if you had enough faith, your life would be insulated against suffering. At the end of Hebrews 11, it says that some of the Christians were sawn in two. They were eaten by lions. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Paul said, through many tribulations, we will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Evil reigns over this world and it's only going to get worse. But guess what, my brothers and sisters? Jesus said, be of good cheer, for I have overcome this world. He has overcome the world. I'm not looking for my best life now. I'm expecting, I'm expecting there to be suffering and pain and hardship. But God is such an amazing God that he even takes the pain and the hardship and he uses that for his purposes to refine us so I can count it as all joy. I can count it as joy and I can say, God, thank you. Thank you for this pain and this hardship. I can count it as joy for your glory and honor. So like Daniel, if you're experiencing some of the evil of this world, it's okay for you to grieve. Let's be a church that grieves with those who are grieving. Like, it's okay. It's okay if you felt the sting of the evil of this world. If you've got sickness or you're facing sickness or you're facing, you're facing the attack of the enemy in some great way, it's okay to be appalled and to grieve over that. But my brothers and sisters, we do not grieve as ones without hope. We have amazing hope in the gospel Jesus has come a first time, and if we are convinced that he will come a first time, we are convinced that he will come a second time to take all those who have believed in him to be with himself, and we will forever be with the Lord. So we do not set our minds on things which are seen, which are temporary, but we set our minds on things which are unseen, because the things that are temporary are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal, eternal. So what season are you going through in your life at the moment? We all go through different seasons. You know, winter or summer is a season when the sun is shining down on you. Who loves summer? Yeah, you love summer? You then have like autumn in your life and you can remember what summer is like, but the leaves in your life are falling away. <laughs> And then there are seasons of winter in your life of, where you can't even remember what summer was like. <laughs> have, you, do you, have you been like that in winter? Like you, in the midst of, of the Adelaidean winter, you can't even think, how did I ever wear shorts and a t-shirt? <laughs> how was that even possible? And then you have seasons of spring where you're seeing new life come back into your life again. I wonder what season of life you're in. Do you know, often life is like this, is we expect certain things to be the case, and then when they're not, we get very disappointed and very frustrated. This past week, just to be honest, I've been dealing with some frustration and some pain because I thought that this would be a season of summer, and it's ended up being, once again, a season of winter for me, 
and for some of the people in our church. And as a pastor, you bear the burdens of other people. And maybe some of you right now know what I'm talking about. You're feeling like you're in winter. You're feeling like, wow, it seems like blessing has dried up in my life. Well, the message of Daniel 8 is that evil will have its day, but God will have the final say. And the joy in Christianity does not come from the prosperity gospel, which teaches you if you have enough faith, you will have a perfect life now. Joy in the Christian life comes from a different source. It actually comes from looking to the things that are unseen, looking up to the heavens and seeing Jesus reigning on the throne, knowing that he will come back again. Isn't it amazing that our God, he knows the end from the beginning? He knew what was going to happen for God's people. He knows what will happen in every one of your lives. He is that amazing God, and therefore he can be trusted. Let me just pray. Lord, as we come to the end of this passage, we are humbled by the power of it. And by what it reveals about you, Lord God. Oh, Father, we pray for us to be a church that is not asleep in the light, but a church that's awake. Oh, God, I pray for... We pray that you would work in us so that we would be faithful to you. And in every season of our life, we would give honor and glory to your name. Lord, I don't even know what to pray now. I don't even know what to pray for for. for the church I love. But I know, Holy Spirit, that you, the promise of Romans 8 is that you will pray with groanings too deep for words, that you are interceding right now for us. And Lord Jesus, you are interceding in heaven for us. Father, I thank you for the comfort and hope of the gospel and the comfort and hope of the Lord Jesus, our amazing Lord and Savior.